good evening or good morning or good afternoon to all the Cockpits and Cocktails listeners. I am Natalie Flygirl Kelly. It's just me tonight, my friend. Fly Alyssa couldn't make it tonight. That's okay. We're going to have a good time anyway, and we have such a great guest. I am excited to have Shannon Huffman Paulson on, and she is just so cool. Badass woman. She is an author and she's written two books, The Grit Factor and North of Hope. I take my glasses off. It's harder for me to see. (laughs) And she's CEO of the Grit or the Grit Institute or Grit Institute? The Grit Institute. That's right. At thegritinstitute.com. Which is uh, just makes me just want to get down and nitty gritty and all that good stuff (laughs) with that. That name, um, but I kind of happened upon your name. Um, well, there's been some military people that we've had on this show, Cockpits and Cocktails, and so it's funny how one, you know, there are the military pilots, females are. It's kind of a small world, so one kind of knows the other and knows the other, and it's just like all these names come together. And um, Shannon was one of these people that I heard this name and um, did a little research and invited her on. And I am excited that you joined us. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, Natalie. It is fun. We are both kind of uh, not in our element, not in our home. We're kind of on vacations in different spots, which makes it all the more fun, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's great to call in from Alaska. I'm up in a little log cabin up in Denali Park. Now you're from Alaska, correct? I'm from Alaska. I grew up uh, in Anchorage, actually, but we spend every August for the most part in Denali. Okay. I bet it's gorgeous. It is beautiful. It's rainy and cool, which um, compared to where I normally live in north central Washington, which is smoky and hot and has just had wildfires going through, I uh, oh. am grateful for the cool air and for the overcast. So Yeah, yeah. It's been kind of a crazy um, summer. It's been so hot and dry in Ohio as well. But, uh, and I've heard about all these wildfires, which is just so concerning. And I, I, hate, I hate that um, we're going through that right now. It's tough. It's tough a lot of places for sure. Yeah. So tell me, we're going to talk about several different things. I want to start with um, your aviation story, your aviation background, because it's pretty cool what, what you've done. And thank you for your service, by the way. That's that's awesome. I appreciate you and all that you sacrificed. Well, it's an honor, as I'm sure all of your guests have said, uh, to have had the opportunity to serve. But I started out as one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the U.S. Army a number of years ago now, uh, after doing ROTC at Duke University and then spending two years in the National Guard and then eight years on active duty. And I like to say my time was between the deserts. So I served in both Bosnia and in Korea, uh, but only a practice exercise in Kuwait. So those who are are there and right now in the in the wake of uh, the challenge in Afghanistan, it's um, it's a it's a whole different deal. So I have enormous respect for that. But um, but I'm incredibly grateful for the experience and many of the people that I had the opportunity to serve with, and of course flying the Apache, which was mm-hmm. which was fantastic. Yeah. So how did you get into the flying the Apache, did you always know you wanted to fly helicopters or what's, how did that all come to be? Well, I grew up in Alaska, as you, uh, as, as you figured out, and, 
And so aviation is a huge, huge part of Alaska, as you know, and I have been exposed to it since I was very, very young, had the opportunity to fly a little bit on some uh, small planes and, and part of a climbing trip up to Denali, actually, as well. Um, but then went to college and was trying to figure out a way to pay for college and ROTC seemed to be the way that would make the most sense. And I totally connected to the sense of purpose, the sense of service, the sense of something bigger than myself. And at the same time, I realized, hey, if I have this obligation to pay back, and I do, what is the most challenging and the coolest thing I can do? And that definitely was aviation. But you know, in 1993, when I was getting ready to graduate, the Apaches weren't open to women to fly. So that was an entirely different story. And, uh, and I knew that flying was something I'd always wanted to do, but Apaches were something that developed in the course of the journey, for sure. So you mentioned uh, Denali, and just a little side note, didn't you, um, wasn't there like this kind of milestone, kind of cool, like achievement that you reached? Tell me about that real quick. <laughs> I, and this was in 1991, so I'm sure that this has been far surpassed, but uh, when I had the opportunity to climb Denali, I was home from college my sophomore year, and I had been training for an army school, actually, air assault school. So I'd been running lots and lots of miles with a big backpack on my back. So I'd basically been training for, for a climb, but I went to a rotary meeting with my mother and they were getting ready in Anchorage, Alaska to do a 60th anniversary climb of Denali. And so it was a month away and I'd been training for something that could be considered to be somewhat similar. And I signed up and it was completely crazy. I mean, it's the kind of thing you do when you're 19 years old and you know nothing <laughs> nothing different, but it yeah. was a really amazing opportunity and uh, um, super tough. I mean, still the most physically difficult thing that I've ever done by really? orders of magnitude, but, um, but a really incredible opportunity at the same time. That is awesome. I mean, you've been through all this training. You really didn't know that it was gonna lead up to that. It just all the right. time just kind of worked out perfectly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back to the Apache. So you're in the military. You're at this point, I guess, when you go through your training where, I mean, based on kind of what I know, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, you start to choose kind of which paths you want to take. So how did that right. happen? Yeah, well, maybe I'll back up a little bit because as I was at ROTC, I was was part of the ROTC detachment at Duke, which was also North Carolina State and UNC Chapel Hill. And I was also drilling with the National Guard because my scholarship was what they called simultaneous membership program. So you're required to be a member of the National Guard while you're going to college. And, uh, and I was part of an aviation unit at that point. They were not um, the pure aviation units that they became later, but they had you know, Blackhawks and Apaches and 58s. And, uh, and so I was assigned to a Blackhawk company because of course that was the only kind of helicopter that women were allowed to fly at the time. And I remember towards the end of my senior year, I went out to the state aviation office to receive my assignment for the years ahead. And I'm just a cadet. I'm just a student. I'm not yet graduated, not yet commissioned. And I report to this colonel and he sits behind a desk that seems as wide as the room, right? Shiny plate glass <laughs> windows going up behind him. And, and I'm trying not to shake as I stand at attention. I've just turned 21 years old. And I remember he asked me to sit down and we exchanged a couple of pleasantries back and forth. This was supposed to be about my assignment for the years that would follow in the guard. And I remember him looking at me in the middle of a sentence, he stops and he sort of leans back in his chair and he looks down his nose and he says, you realize cadet that you will never fly an attack aircraft. Mm. And I looked back at him and I recognized his comment for what it was meant to be, which was this 
small and mean and cutting comment because at the time attack aircraft weren't even open to women to fly. But I also had learned at that point in the military that there's sometimes that you say, yes, sir. And so I said, yes, sir. And I went back to the ROTC detachment on the campus of Duke University and requested a transfer out of the National Guard and onto active duty. And then later that spring, Congress changed the game on that colonel and on everybody else lifted the combat exclusion clause in 1993, right in the spring. And suddenly everything in the inventory was open for women and men to fly. So I report to Fort Rucker, Alabama later that year. Begin the aviation officer basic course and the initial entry rotary wing course. We all start out in Hueys at the time, if you can imagine. And then at some point, we have the opportunity to make the request and also assess into our different airframes. That's based on class rank and how you do on these assessments, and probably a lot of things we didn't know at the time. And uh, and I had started out in Hueys, and I requested a transfer into the scout and attack track. So then trained on OH-58s for nights and. Um, and for tactics, and then was uh, earned and was given a transfer into the AH-64A Apache attack helicopter. Wow. So did you want to go back to the sky and tell them, ha-ha? <laughs> <laughs> I get that question a lot. You know, I, I have the opportunity to speak to companies and organizations around the world now because after uh, after the military, of course, I went through business school and then spent some time in the corporate world as well. And so I, I now speak to large organizations and companies on leadership and grit and on the lessons that are in The Grit Factor, which is the book that I know we'll get around to talking about in a moment. And, and people ask quite often, did you ever have a chance to talk to that colonel again? And I keep thinking he might be in an audience someday, but, uh, but he's never come up to talk to me if he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think based on some of the conversations I've had with some other um, female military um pilots of, of various nature you know the um there was no really disrespect towards him that was just how it was you know so right. it's like even if he wanted it to be different it wasn't going to be different that was just how it was so he was maybe trying to squelch any dreams maybe you had because it just wasn't going to happen i don't know maybe he thought it was for yeah. your benefit i'm not sure you never know, right? You never know. I mean, I, I have the chance to work with some of the best people that I'll ever know in my life while I was in uniform and some of the worst as well. And um, yeah. uh, I don't didn't know him enough to make a uh, make an yeah. assessment for sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started your training as a female, what um, what was the environment like for you? How was the training? I'm sure it's hard for anybody. Was it and you had no aviation background? really from your family or anything right prior to so this That's is all right. new to you what was yep. it like what's it like learning how to fly a military helicopter like that that's such a cool <laughs> helicopter <laughs> i mean it's it's a pretty amazing right to have these opportunities i have a, a young uh, son right now who's eight who wants to be a, a fighter pilot and um and he says, well, I, I want to save up money for flight school. I'm like, well, if you want to fly, you, you fly in the military. Like, they're going to train you better than anybody yeah. else is going to. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, initially it's tough. I, I thought I was never going to learn how to hover. There's like this 10 hours where you're trying to practice hovering and you, you think you're never, ever going to make it. And you're swinging this Huey all over this football field size patch oh of land. Gosh, and then, yeah. you know, 10 hours in somehow you just do it and they talk, call it a hover button right and it's been a while now but i remember like there was some point when suddenly you're hovering and you're just and you've just been you've just been killing it for like you know 10 days of an hour a day and your stick buddy's been flying an hour a day as well and and everybody's all over the place and then suddenly it just comes and and you think all along the way I, i'm just going to be that one person who cannot get up i'm going to be the one yeah. right that, that 
can't do it. And it comes and it comes like everything else that you put your, your mind and your effort and your, your, um, your work into. So yeah. I think that yeah. was a great uh, metaphor. And the other part of that metaphor is of course, and like with any flying, like you get into the helicopter those first few hours and you think it's about controlling it. And it's really kind of about just sort of letting it be right. And, mm -hmm. and giving it a nudge here and there. And so it's the over control that causes more of the problems and the so true. That's how it is too. And, you know, in a fixed wing aircraft, especially with the landings, you overcorrect and you're trying to line it up and they're just like, just kind of let it, you know, just minor adjustments. And um, right. that's a really hard thing when you're first starting out um, to do. But I love how you said you feel like it's just you that's having a hard time with this one thing. Cause so many times I have felt that way. It was just like, okay, they don't really understand that, you know, everybody else says it's hard, but I really think it's harder for me or I'm just not going to get it. I'm just not, you know, good enough at this. And, you know, and we beat ourselves up. And I remember right. instructors telling me everybody feels like that. You have That's to right. just keep, keep, keep at it and stick to it and you'll come out on the other side. Exactly. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the metaphor that I love, and I just love this metaphor so much, and you'll appreciate it no matter whether you are listening as a rotary wing pilot or as a fixed wing pilot. But um, I always talk to organizations again with these keynotes. And uh, and if you're ever in one of these, I, I will be using this because it's it's just really resonates <laughs> that when you take off, right, you get ready for takeoff, you start this run up procedure that you know so well that you know it by heart, but you always use the checklist and mm -hmm. you taxi out on the runway for takeoff. And I'll ask people to raise their hands and say, which way do you take off with an Apache helicopter? And people say up. And of course, up is correct, right? We all we all want to be in the, in the sky ultimately. But you turn the nose to face the wind, right? And when you use it the right way, that resistance helps you to rise. And that's true no matter what kind of aircraft you're in, no matter what kind of challenge you're facing, you have to turn towards it and you have to fly directly through it. And uh, and I think it's just a great metaphor for life and, yes. and all of the things that we're all facing right now. Yeah, so true. I love that. I love that. So your career flying with, with the Apache, so how long did it last? And what were some of your hardest parts about being a helicopter pilot? Um, and what were some of the most fun things that you remember? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm probably a short timer compared to lots of your listeners because I served uh, active duty for eight years and seven of those were in aviation positions of, of some former fashion. And uh, my service was primarily at Fort Bragg. That was my first duty station. I worked in operations and then led my first flight platoon, uh, then took another flight platoon in another battalion that was deploying to Bosnia. So we deployed to Bosnia, came back to Fort Bragg, and I did the military intelligence officer advance course, which of course not, was non-flying in Huachuca, Arizona, and then went to Korea and then flew in Korea for about 15 months and then came back to the States to Fort Bliss, Texas. So um, so that was the, the eight years as a quick overview. I think some of the, the most fun flying was always a mission profile, right? Mm -hmm. And Korea probably had the fewest restrictions on, the, on flying. So it was a ton of fun to be able to just kill it. Um, we're flying mostly, of course, in Korea in support of uh, the 2nd Infantry Division, the 2nd Brigade Combat Team. We were supporting infantry, so that's kind of the close combat attack uh, tactics that were used, for example, in Vietnam. So it's very different than Fort Bragg, where the mission was this deep attack. So you realize these airframes can do a pretty wide variety of missions, right, depending mm -hmm. on what the requirements are. Um, 
and uh, and I would just say anytime we were in mission profile was was absolutely uh, the most exciting, the most interesting, the most uh, focused that we could be as opposed to being back on base where you've got, you know, all the demands of daily life as well as as you're flying. But yeah. I remember Korea specifically, there's like there was no hard deck. There was no. And we flew the border between North and South Korea in in large part, and actually the no-fly line, which is two kilometers south of that. And so there was this sense of danger, like if you violate that no-fly line, it's an act of war, right? It's an yeah. act of war, you get shot down. And um, yeah. so even though there's no sense of that that tension in the States, while you're deployed there, while you're flying there, there's this very real sense of doing something that um, was important, and the yeah. flying was was amazing it was amazing it was yeah. tough you know it's mountain flying it's mountain flying and um and it's mountain flying on a border that's um that's hostile so i think that yeah. was a, a double dose of um of adrenaline definitely definitely so you're when you fly uh the apache what what's how many what's the crew like how many people so are yeah, we're two two pilots in the aircraft, okay. and there's no room for anything else because the Apache is essentially a flying weapons platform, right? So okay. it's 58 feet long, it's um, 18 feet wide, it's 12 feet high, it's powered by two 1850 horsepower jet engines. And this is the H-64A, they're now into the Echo model, I believe. Um, but on the nose, there's three different sight systems. It can see in day and night in adverse conditions. That's the TADS and the FLIR, the forward-looking infrared system, of course, uh, that we look at through a monocle over our right eye. On mm -hmm. the wings, there was any combination of the 2.75-inch folding fin aerial rocket and the anti-tank Hellfire missile. And then, then under the belly is the 30-millimeter high-explosive cannon. So mm -hmm. the landing gear is fixed, as with most helicopters. And um, and we flew primarily, you know, tactical missions low to the ground and um, uh, and two two rated pilots. The backseater in the Apache is the pilot in command. The front seater who was my position is in charge mm -hmm. of navigation and communications and then weapons deployment. So it's it really becomes um, more so maybe than some other aircraft, a systems management sort of a thing. And that's true for any kind of aviation for sure. But suddenly you've got not just communications and navigation, but you're communicating with, you know, in Bosnia, we're talking to any number of the NATO forces as well as managing all the weapons uh, platforms as well. So, so pretty. Um, Stepping up the comms uh, quite a bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it was, there, was, there was a lot to keep track of for sure. And, you know, back then we're still on Australian fold maps. So navigation oh, is wow. like so yeah. different now than it was yeah. then. It's just sort of crazy to think about all the things that you have in the cockpit now that we didn't have back then. Yeah, I don't know how I, I could have done it without, without my iPad. <laughs> I don't can't imagine flying with an iPad, but I bet you get to the place where you can't do it without it, right? So, right. Totally. You know, my uncle, I flew a lot with him. And even when the iPad was an option, he still right. just continued to use the paper charts. And that was his comfort. That's where he was comfortable, you know, and he knew what he's doing. So it worked for him. And, you know, it's the same thing. So it's just in a different format, I guess. Different format. That's right. And all of our, you know, my, all of my, my two kids will, I'm sure, not even be able to imagine what paper was used I for know. as reference. <laughs> I know. I love the paper charts, though. I think they're cool, and I like to spread them out and look at them. And it's just neat how um, how detailed they are. They're just neat, you know. Yeah. No, I think there's nothing like paper as both a writer yeah. and a and a flyer. I, lo I love. Yeah. Paper, so. Right. Well, that was a great little lead-in to your chat <laughs> about. <laughs> 
So you decided, tell me, kind of wrap um, up your transition from your military into how did your writing career um, start from that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I get a lot of people that ask, like, well, how did you start this? Like, you were, you published your first book in your 30s, and, like, how did you just start doing that? I was like, well, I didn't just start doing it then. I've been writing my entire life. Like, when I was 12 years old and did that little junior high book that says, what are you going to be when you grow up, right? My, mine was a writer and an artist. So that's that's my, that's where I'm coming back to now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had been writing, you know, I was an English major in college, and I had been writing the newsletters or articles all through my Army career as well. So this is not a new venture, but it was a new focus area, I think, as a, as a complete focus. Um, I left the military uh, after my eight years was up and went back to the business school, actually, at the Tuck School at Dartmouth. And that was a that was a big transition for sure to leave. And right as I left, actually, it's so interesting with all that's happening right now, because I left in August 2001. And then I got to business school and then oh, September wow. 11th. Right? Yes. And suddenly what? I feel like I am in the wrong place. Like I should never mm -hmm. have left. I should have been mm -hmm. back there. I should have been doing all of this that everybody else is, is doing that I know and mm -hmm. in a way that I know. And I'm, you know, doing spreadsheets in, yeah. <laughs> in the ivory tower in New Hampshire. Yeah. And, uh, it was a really tough two years. I thought that was, yeah. Yeah. So difficult to to get there. And, and that doesn't even answer the writing piece yet, but I was trying to find a way to take those skills from the military that are so operational, logistics and personnel yeah. and, and making stuff happen. I was like, well, you know, business school is going to be the natural transition for that. It's making stuff happen. I like to make stuff happen. I, I do that pretty well. And and so went through business school, spent some time in the corporate world at both a medical device company called Guidant Corporation, later Boston Scientific, and then at Microsoft. And, you know, we had a family tragedy. Um, in 2005, my father and my stepmother were killed by a grizzly bear while they were camping in the Arctic. And not not uh, the kind of thing that, that most people are expecting or, um, or have happened. And I realized at that point, and I didn't leave for three more years from Microsoft, but I knew I wasn't doing the thing that I was meant to do. Yeah. I needed to be doing what I was meant to do. And that was writing. And so my first book, North of Hope, is about taking a trip back up the year after they died to follow their footsteps, to take that same trip, to be able oh to. Oh, gosh, I have like goosebumps right now. I have to. <laughs> Microsoft. I um, went back, took this second, this trip that followed their footsteps, worked there for three more years, have amazing friends still from Microsoft, just an incredible group of people. And I was like, you know, I need to write this book. I need to leave. I need to do the thing that I know that I've always been meant to do. And I left to write North of Hope, um, finished my MFA as well, and then published North of Hope and then was on this journey and thought, hey, you know, I love business. I love operations. How can I combine this creative aspect with this business and operational piece that I really, really love. And that has become my career over the last 10 years, which is you know, speaking about leadership, about grit and resilience, about optimism, about storytelling, about purpose, and then developing courses at the Grit Institute that, are, uh, that I act as a leadership facilitator for in, again, the same companies and organizations. So keynotes and then leadership facilitation. And then of course the book, which is the grit factor and the grit factor I mean, it's been such an honor to have The Grit Factor out in the world, which is the second book. So North of Hope first and then The Grit Factor. Wow. That is just so amazing that I love to hear it when things kind of kind of 
come full circle. I don't know if that's the word, but you have, you have all these interests and these talents and you don't really know, you know, when you're younger, how this is all going to work out, you know, how is all these things I love going to come together and the experiences that I've had and, and use them in a way that is fulfilling to you, but also can be helpful to others. Exactly. And that was the genesis, to be honest, of of the grit factor, the book. I was already speaking to organizations, speaking to companies about leadership and and helping them to work on that within their own cultures. But then I had this young lieutenant reach out and she's getting ready to go to flight school back down to Fort Rucker, Alabama, begin this aviation career. And she reaches out through this online mentorship program and asks if I'll, I'll be her mentor. And I say, of course, I'd love to I'd be honored. And then I started to doubt myself again, right? Like it had been a number of years since I'd served. I had transitioned into the corporate world. Um, My experience as one of the first women to fly the Apache was surely somewhat unique. And um, so I wanted to know how I could scale what I offered to her as she started this career or anybody that was either starting out or transitioning into something new. And then also scale the people to whom it was available once I'd done all this work. And that was the genesis of what became the grit factor. And I began this series of interviews over several years of leaders in the vanguards of their field. They happen to be women. They happen to be military. They're heavily weighted towards aviators from World War II to the present. Mm. So, you know, World War II wasps all the way up to people who are, wow. have been flying in recent engagements yeah. and, uh, and all different ranks, you know, general officers across the services and a Navy submariner and a Coast Guard combat rescue swimmer and one of the first women army rangers who also flew Apaches. So this incredible cohort of leaders and hearing like, what are your, what are your stories? What are your lessons learned? And then synthesizing those stories and lessons learned with the latest in management and leadership research, and then bringing that down to a tactical takeaway. So we start with story, we get into the research and then we say, here's the tactical takeaway. Here's how to apply that in your own life. And that is why it's such an honor to have the grit factor, courage, resilience, and leadership in the most male-dominated organization in the world, out in the world, because it really, truly is making a difference in so many people's lives. And it's such an honor to to help bring it to to all of us. Yeah, that is cool. So you mostly offer this program to uh, business organizations, leaders, or, or explain. Yeah, so I do keynotes, so like big presentations mm-hmm. to really big conferences, right? Like sales mm-hmm. conferences or kickoff conferences or, or or that sort of a thing. And and that's just uh, typically to businesses and, and large organizations. But then the training itself is available to anybody. So I can either facilitate it for an organization and I can tweak it to make it very specific to mm-hmm. the needs of that organization. Yeah. Or it can be accessed just by you or, or by your friends uh, at thegritinstitute.com. And we're just re-releasing Going for Grit, which is kind of the signature keynote course. Uh, it's it's awesome. Honestly, it's like yeah. the best of the grit factor. And it goes a little deeper into a couple of areas as well. Um, Paths to Purpose will be coming out just a little bit later this fall. I developed that for Intuit and for Verizon, actually, specifically, and uh, and then have taught this as well at Microsoft. So some pretty big companies have been part of this, yeah. and it's it really has been again, like this incredible honor to bring this into the world when we really need, we need that reconnection to purpose. We need that reconnection to resilience and grit in a time when um, none of us could ever have expected the challenges that yes, we're facing. Totally. That is yeah. so true. So overall, your this program, is it geared towards women? Is it geared towards certain overcoming certain things? What is the, what is it all about? Yeah, I like to say that that really the focus, uh, I, and you know, I, I certainly use examples of women leaders, and yeah. I like to think that if I used all male leaders, nobody would even blink. So it shouldn't even be a thing, right? Like it's yeah. just 
they happen to be leaders and they happen to be women. And what that means is, as you know, they have overcome a double crucible, which means that they've had the challenges of the job that anyone would have, mm -hmm. as well as in many cases, the challenges of an environment that didn't always accept them being there and sometimes was openly hostile. So we think of that as a double crucible, and that's a term that was coined by a Stanford law professor. But uh, but the program is available and, and applicable to absolutely anybody. And honestly, like high school on up to somebody who is seasoned and maybe facing a challenge or a change. It's really, I think, especially relevant for those facing change and facing challenge. And that's exactly where all of us are finding ourselves yeah. right now. So yeah. so leadership, grit, resilience, storytelling, and this connection to core purpose, that is exactly the sweet spot for every single one of us as we try to navigate this yeah. this pretty uncertain reality. And I like to say it's it's this horizon that's unclear, right? You're flying right. very far, but you can't see the horizon. Right. And, and that's really disorienting. Yes. That's so true. I, I, I love that. Um, you know, especially for, because we all want purpose. We yes. all want to matter, make a difference. We all want to, to fulfill our own, like, I don't know if destiny is the word, but our own, you know, path and, and, and reach those things that, that we're destined to do and we're good at, we're talented at and share those kind of gifts and things to others. So, to find exactly. that um, it's not always easy. It's kind of like when you, when we're talking about, you always doubt yourself and you're like, well, yeah, but I, they passed it, but I don't know if I can pass, you know, I, I feel exactly. like I'm different and I don't have what it takes and to, to overcome. Yes, you do have what it takes. And right. so do you have exercises? Is that how people work on these? You know, cause a lot of it's like self-esteem and stuff like that, or learning how to speak up and, and and say what you want and go after those things that you dream of it doesn't have to be a dream you can actually make yeah. it happen yeah no absolutely and i think that's part of the power of both the grit factor the book uh, which is available anywhere books are sold <laughs> as well as the grit institute and the courses at the grit institute because it starts again with the stories and i enter into everything both in the course and in the book with stories so there's a reading and a reading reflection You'll also have an action plan. You'll kind of have this uh, a journal that you can, can download and continue to take notes in as you go along. But then there's these tactical exercises to say, here's the story, here's the research, You know, reflect on this a little bit. How does this apply to you? And now here's the exercise to take it deeper into your own life because that's what we really need to do, right? And coming back to the purpose concept, Natalie, you're so right. Like purpose has always been important and it's one of my favorite parts of the entire grit factor. And you know, the lessons that come out of the grit factor come out into three sections. They're commit, learn, and launch. That's connection to your past. That's a deep engagement in the present. And then that's looking towards the future with both authenticity as well as audacity and adaptability. Mm -hmm. And then to take those from these kind of more amorphous concepts down into what it really means to connect to them ourselves, then each chapter will go into tactical exercises and say, okay, let's talk about what it means to commit. What does it mean to own your own story? What does it mean to drill down to core purpose? Mm. And all of the research that's coming out of the pandemic, especially, is that purpose is the most critical thing for us to spend time reconnecting to. And it's not easy, to your point, right? Mm. It's not an right. easy work. It's like deep internal reflective work. And we've got to yeah. give ourselves the time and the space to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we feel like if it's really hard, maybe it's not supposed to be my purpose. Maybe that's, you know, maybe it's not the right fit when really if you, you stick through the lessons you learn by sticking through something and maybe you're, I'm not going to come out being an airline pilot or whatever, but right. maybe this is leading me to something else, what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, 
Exactly. And somehow aviation plays a role in that. You just don't know. Well, aviation, I mean, I feel like the metaphors are just replete in aviation, right? Like yeah. every single one of your listeners knows what it means to like work hard towards your check ride, right? Or towards your a new certification. And then you're up in the air and everything falls apart, right? Like you've studied, yeah. you've, you've learned, you've got your flight plan. And then suddenly the wind picks up or suddenly there's, there's something else that a different weather system kicks in and you're like, wow, now you've got to respond. And that, yeah. that really is, ends up where the grit factor ends with adaptability, right? Commit, learn, and launch. Launch is this looking towards the future. Adaptability is kind of the keystone. And that is the absolute number one thing that we need to be able to have to negotiate uncertain horizons, right? This flying VFR when you can't see where you're going, that's pretty disorienting. And adaptability is key and, and aviators have to have that. They have to have that grounding in the present, knowing where they've come from, knowing their stuff, but then be able to adapt as things continue to change. Yeah. So I, I think I just love the metaphors in aviation. Uh, that's true. There's a ton of them, aren't there? There are, there are. Turn the nose to face the wind. And yeah, that's right. Right, right. I, I know. I love when I'm feeling like, uh, like I need a little pick me up, or I love to go look up aviation quotes and some of the things that that come up. They're like, yeah, that's right. You know. Um, and I, one of the things I tell people too, when they are, when they do a check ride and, or they're getting prepared. Um, I remember one of my instructors telling me, and I don't know if it was good or bad, but it was, it prepared me in a way that, you know, not everybody passes a check ride the first time. That's right. That doesn't mean this isn't meant for you. You can't right. let that defeat you. Maybe that's what your journey needs to be. Maybe there's something you needed to learn from that that you wouldn't have learned if you if you had passed it you there's a certain area where you're weak and you really need to you know hone in on that and and figure and that will help build you in some way that yeah it sucks and it's embarrassing and and you don't want it to happen to you but it does happen but it doesn't mean oh I can't be a pilot because I you know I messed up that's exactly right. You know, and I'm just getting, I'm writing a book review right now for um, the Navy uh, magazine proceedings. And it's about uh, Amy McGrath's new book that's coming out on her bound. Actually, I think it just, just was released. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's one of the first F-18 combat pilots in the Marines. And one of the things that she says, and she actually interviewed her for the grit factor. So she's in there as well. Mm -hmm. And I love one of her, her quotes is like, I don't trust someone who hasn't failed, right? Like mm -hmm. if you haven't failed yeah. and if you haven't learned how to come out of failure, uh, right. then that's a little dangerous almost, right? Like yeah. you want to work with people who know what it means to fail and you know what it means to overcome that failure. Yeah. And, uh, and that's an important, that's an important part of the whole uh, process, the yeah. whole experience. So true. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So once you like, do you fly anymore? I mean, once you stop with the <laughs> Apache, have you ever been, you know, flying anymore? Like, tell me what's happened after that in aviation for you. Not too much, uh, for better or worse. I, I have had a chance to fly a little bit with some friends, you know, civilians with small airplanes. But um, at the end of the day, you know, and again, growing up in Alaska, most of the accidents, of course, they say it's weather, weather and weather, right? But it's yeah. also like the people who just fly once in a while. And I kind yeah. of feel like you should fly all the time or not at all. Right. Uh, is just based on, again, my, my time in the military where we were, when we were good, we were really good. And when you didn't get to fly, you were, you were not so much. And yeah. I have two little boys right now that are eight and 11. I work, my husband works, we like to backpack and ski. And so 
I, I do miss it quite a bit, but I also think that it's important to either have that be your thing or uh, just recognize that you'll go up it's in front. It's not. And, yeah. You can't dedicate yeah. the time to it to make sure you're, you're safe. And um, exactly. yes, that's so true. Well, I don't want to say that you need to get up and fly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody but, wants know. to fly out to the Metal Valley, I'll, I'll go out with you. And, uh, <laughs> I have actually thought as the boys are getting older, I'm like, you know, when they start to get busy with their own stuff, maybe it's something I, I can do know. again. That's right. You never know what, right. what, what's going to happen. And even if it doesn't, it did lead to you to where you are right now. So, you know. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's right. Were you involved in the military, like the... I know there's like some helicopter um, aviation history type organizations. Are you involved in those? I, I've done a little bit uh, to support some of the work on bringing the WASPs back into the forefront, right? The Women Aviation uh, Service yes. Pilots. And actually a fun story, um, we're out at Denali right now and we were out at Camp Denali, actually just some friends run this, this place in the west end of the park, which is this absolutely stunning lodge area. Uh, and we didn't stay there because that's a, a little bit outside of our budget, but it's highly recommended for anybody who can manage it. But they do have a small cabin that used to be owned by Ginny Woods. And Ginny Woods and Celia started Camp Denali, and they were both wasps. And so I'm reading about them to my sons, and I'm like, yeah, they were they were women Air Force service pilots. They flew, you know, they, they did transport. They did all, but basically the wasps flew everything in the inventory, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then they ended up adventuring all over Europe and, and then coming back to Alaska from Washington State, where they were both from. So there's some kind of fun connection between Denali and the wasps. But I've done yeah. a little bit of work with the the, the uh, effort to bring the wasps back to the forefront. And I, to be honest, when I originally conceived of the grit factor, I was going to look at those Russian fighter regiments in World War II. You know, there's three of them. The the night witches. And then there's two more, right? There's three yeah. of them. And they flew everything in the Russian inventory. And they were unbelievable pilots yeah. like they were just phenomenal uh, and it didn't end up being something that that worked as as you start to put the book together and you start to find the publisher yeah. you know it, it, it ends up um uh, falling out a slightly different way but i do i do look forward to being able to include that in in some yeah. form or fashion as i go forward so yeah well so, it's good yeah. I mean, you know of it so i'm sure you talk about it and you know it's funny because i never heard a thing about the wasp until probably five years ago and it was exactly like, Nobody talked about it, and well, um, nobody and talked the night about witches. it. That's I mean, well, I've definitely never heard of the night witches, and someone happened to recommend it as I was sort of researching the wasp, and I was like, oh my gosh, these these airplanes these women were flying and the conditions they were in it was just, and nobody really talks about it at all. Nobody talks. I mean, it's just phenomenal, honestly. The stories yeah, are are incredible, and they still don't get the the uh, credit or or the yeah. coverage that they really ought to, given given the exploits that they yeah. they were able to pull off. Yeah, I hope I hope that changes and that, you know, we'll hear more and more stories about about them and um, come to realize, I mean, you know, we think we have it hard sometimes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, it's funny. I remember actually when I was first at Fort Bragg and the newspaper just had covered my arrival at Fort Bragg and they're like, this is the first woman Apache pilot at Fort Bragg. And I and somebody interviewed um, a wasp in North Carolina. And again, I'd never heard of the wasps at the point yeah. at that point. So it's the 90s, right? With the internet's not even a thing. So yeah, unless right. that's out in the common domain, we just don't know about it. And somebody asks this old lady who lives somewhere in some little town in North Carolina, what do you what do you think about this? And she said, well, well that's no big deal. We did that 50 years ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, isn't that amazing? And yeah. that, and nobody even knew. And they really. They really are so humble, and many of them have passed now. There's a few, only a few left, and 
they're so humble about their experiences and what they did. I think it was just a whole nother generation, right? Yes. And they just went yeah. into being school teachers or wives or whatever it was. And, yeah. uh, and yeah. just- and They're not on Instagram movie. with their selfies. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right, not- exactly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, I'm always uh, amazed, you know, cause even even the, the men pilots that would take some of these airplanes, like their first solo, was actually the first time in particular airplanes, you know, like that didn't only had one seat and they're in these crazy big powerful machines and for the first time, and that happens to be their first solo, it's crazy. I know, I know. It's sort of a, it's amazing to to consider it. And I actually sort of envied it. I was reading Celia and Jenny's stories. I was like, oh, I mean, they're just doing this amazing work in aviation, right? And and again, typically when women weren't even allowed, the, the Air Force wouldn't even let them fly to Alaska, right? And that's how they ended up coming here eventually is the Air Force said, oh, no, women can't go to Alaska. There's no facilities for them, which is such an absurd thing to say. Yeah. And uh, and they just sort of got annoyed. And so when they got out of the Air Force, they're like, okay, let's go, let's go fly to Alaska. Yeah, <laughs> so, we're going to do this now. I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I do think that story is so good for whether you're in aviation or in something else, because you talk to women of the time who will say, gosh, you know, it's so neat that you can do these things now. We didn't get to do that back then. I'm like, well, some people did. And like, yeah. what makes what made them do that? I, I I really don't know. It's it's an amazing thing. They they were not um, wealthy necessarily. They were just, you know, they were just girls who wanted to wanted to fly and they found yeah. a way to do it. And that's yeah. a great lesson for all of us, no matter what the field is. That's true. Yeah. You don't really know who knows what their background was there. They're, you just don't know why certain people do certain things that, that they actually had the courage and the nerve to do it when most everyone else did not, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I uh, thought this was great. I mean, I learned so much and I have a lot of reading to do. <laughs> I got some grit going. <laughs> That's right. The grit factor. No, I, I do. Uh, I do think your, your listeners will really appreciate it. And then if you do, please leave a, please leave a happy review on Amazon. That always helps all of us um, yeah. and uh, pass it on and tell all your friends. So yes. I'm, I'm, again, really just happy to have it in the world. And I'm happy to also pass on to you, if you like a discount code for your listeners for going for grit. Uh, I'm really excited about the uh, the new yeah. release that's coming out. Yeah, uh, September that 9th. Would be great. We would love that very awesome. much. So. Thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation to chat with me here on Cockpits and Cocktails. Tell everyone where they can find you on like social media and, and you have a website or anything like that. Let us know what that is. Yeah, great. I'm at shannonpolson.com, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-O-L-S-O-N.com and also at thegritinstitute.com. Uh, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn and Twitter at a border life. Uh, LinkedIn at Shannon H. Polson. And then I am on Instagram and you'll get a, a smattering of all kinds of stuff though. That's a little bit more personal as well as professional, but LinkedIn and Twitter for mostly professional uh, engagement and would love to see all of you there. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. I enjoyed it very much. Can't wait to, to read your books and, and follow you on LinkedIn and Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff and see, see what you're up to next. Likewise, Natalie. I love the conversation. Thanks so much and all the best getting back home for you. Thank you very much. Have a good night. You too. Take care.